Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by uh, esteemed, famous journalist Bob Smetana. Thanks for talking with us today. I'm glad to be uh, with you. I'm not sure I'm famous or infamous. Well, if any of the folks listening have read articles about religion in America over the past few decades, they've read your work or people who are uh, responding to the kind of uh, professional journalism that you're applying to religion. So uh, thanks for um, talking with us about your new book. And um, uh, we'll talk about it because I think it applies to Adventism, even though you're really talking about the wider kind of Christian church. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's first talk about how you uh, started thinking about writing reorganized religion, mm-hmm. the reshaping of the American church, and why it matters. What drew you to this topic? Oh, that's a that's a good question. So there's a long and short answer. Long answer is I've been doing this for for since 1999 and watching the change in landscape and watching the decline of congregations and watching the rise of the nuns and then also watching how important religion is. So there's these kind of two things, right? The, the decline of religion and the importance of it. And I've been thinking about a way to get into this book for ages. Um, you know, I probably, there's probably parts of that book that I started writing a decade ago, right? There's a few chapters where these ideas were kind of percolating, but it really wasn't until um, I started thinking about the um, uh, disaster relief. So I actually was uh, covering a disaster, this time on the phone, calling people, you know, and if you know anything about disasters in American life, they're very religious experiences, right? There's, there's, everyone is there, right? The, the Southern Baptists and the Mormons and the Methodists and atheists, and everybody comes to help out. And it's one place where everyone gets along. But it's often populated by, and all the volunteer work is done by older, often church members, older religious people. So I, I get off the phone with someone and I open up one of these, you know, studies about the rise of the nuns where the N-O-N-E-S is, right? People who have no religious affiliation. It's about one in four Americans and thinking and and about one in three younger Americans and thinking, what's going to happen when all those old people die off, basically? There's not going to be anybody around to do that work or fewer people because people are, even if they identify as um, religious and they're younger, they're not engaged in joining churches and joining these kind of things. So that's kind of a, so it's been brewing for a long time. And then that was like the moment of going, oh, and what, you know, what churches do and religious groups do is make the world less terrible, make it less awful. That's what I wanted to call the book. (laughs) My editor would not let me do that, uh, which is probably good. But right. So this, they, they can make, it's an organized way to, to, for people to uh, show kindness to strangers. Yeah. And be, for strangers to be kind to want to people in need. And uh, that's, so anyway, that's the kind of the, the big, the, uh, in some ways I find myself being 
a little bit of an evangelist for organized religion because it can get things done in a way that sort of disorganized spirituality can't. Well, Long great. I like the way you frame that. We're aware of declinist narratives in, in American religion. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm glad you brought up disaster be relief because that's something that Adventists have prioritized themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as sexy as some other emerging ways of being involved in the world. Mm -hmm. so it's got a its own narrative as well. You you yeah. address that in the first part of your book. Let's kind of hit the main points and then dig in a little bit deeper here. In part two, you raise a question that I hear all the time. Mm -hmm. Why are people leaving? So how do you frame that? And how do you think of oh. it? Okay, so there's a couple things. One is why do people never show up in the first place? And that is because they weren't born. Right. So what happened in American uh, society is that Americans stopped having as many babies, particularly white American Christians. So, you know, in the 1960s, when I was born, the country was most, you know, 85 percent white. Almost everybody's Christian. The men are in charge. The nuclear family is the center of life. And going to church is what good people do. So what's what's true now is that the country is much more diverse um, we're redefining what family is. We're becoming more egalitarian. And this largest part of the religious landscape is so-called nuns. So one part of it is that people stop having babies. And the way you grow a religious group or church is you practice it. You have kids. You pass it on to your kids. They have kids. And then if you bring new people in, you get them in that that kind of generational passing on. So what's happened in America is that people stopped having as many kids. And then those kids stop going to church. So if you have more old people than babies, then you're going to decline. So that's one part is that people didn't have as many kids. So there weren't as many people showing up um, in, on the front end of that. And then you have people, the number of people who leave religious groups has grown. And that is for a number of factors. One is that they just stop believing the things that religion teaches. That's the number one factor. Politics and sexuality play a role too conflict there's all kinds of other things but that's the but a, a lack of actually believing what the faith teaches is sort of the big thing and then you have this kind of generalized along with that a generalized um decline in trust in institutions so we don't trust our schools we don't trust the government trust the military so churches are just one more thing that people don't trust and the way i try to describe it as like a moving walkway at the airport Though, um, you know, if you that moving walkway would like in the culture would carry people to to churches in particular by saying this is if you want to be good, you should go to church and it'll teach them a bunch about Christianity and just by being part of the culture or say you're in a canoe and you're going down, you know, you're going with the current, the current will carry people towards churches. And now the current, the moving walkway is ended or you're going back upstream. And so no longer are people being brought to the church because they should. So a lot of it is people just didn't show up in the first place. And then people leave because they don't believe or they don't think there's a place for them anymore. They Or they've been told there's no place for you here. Yeah. Um, let's, let's dig into that a little bit because um, Adventism comes into this from a, a kind of an evangelistic and an mm -hmm. institutional uh, arena. The evangel traditionally, Adventism has grown in the U.S. 
by putting on an evangelistic series. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking earlier, and I think you may have experienced something like this. Yeah, I've been to that. The idea is you kind of combine some interpretations of Daniel and Revelation, and you give people the the kind of headline pull is you're going to kind of unlock yeah. this difficult to understand apocalyptic texts. Yeah. But you'll also give people a sense of the future, explain the past, position mm -hmm. them. You know, kind of like we're in a Gauguin painting. You've explained where yeah. are we from, where are we going, and who we are. Um, that is not as cool as it used to be when you could throw up a tent in a small town mm -hmm. in Oklahoma and draw a crowd. And the second thing is that Adventists, you know, really invested into educational institutions yep. and uh, healthcare institutions. And the idea is that you would, you know, kind of raise your kids, send them to Adventist schools, and, and they'd kind of take care of the process of turning them into uh, a part of your family that you could continue to feel comfortable with. That has changed as younger Adventists have questioned the beliefs and left the church. And so a lot of uh, older Adventists feel like the, uh, the kind of Adventist bargain has failed them institutionally mm -hmm. as well in some way. And the institution itself has betrayed uh, trust for a variety of reasons. How do, does that connect in? Because, uh, you know, the, the kind of larger Christian mainline mm -hmm. evangelical Pentecostal branches, the Catholic branches, are we different than everyone else? Or are we similar, more similar? Oh, than you're probably more have? similar in that people don't, uh, they don't trust institutions in general, and they're not going to take on faith what you passed on. So that's very true. You know, the same things that um, what's, what's interesting is there was a um, there's a famous book. Uh, the author's last name is Kelly about it's called Why Conservative Churches Grow. And it's from the 60s. It's sort of um, looking at the beginnings of mainline decline and making it a theological argument, saying they don't believe the truth anymore and therefore they decline. Well, um, what that didn't look at was the birth rates of mainline Christians who stopped having kids a lot sooner. And there, there may be something to the theology, but the, but the demographics are so much bigger, right? There's just these lack of faith. So you can no longer count on the people coming up and saying, well, I'm going to buy all this stuff. I'm going to believe all these things. And uh, and I think the way that, um, particularly, I think a faith like Adventism, which has distinctives, it, it's probably less room for people to say, I don't believe those things and I can still belong. Mm -hmm. So religion has three part, really three parts, belief, behavior, and belonging. And in some places you can believe less and still belong. I would think Adventism is harder because you have some, you know, what day you worship, what's the future look like? Those are pretty distinctives um, that if you don't believe those anymore, can you actually be part of the, um, the, the belief and the belonging are so tied there. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I would think that just in general, I mean, the things that are growing are Pentecostalism and non-denominationalism, right? So those are more generic or in Pentecostalism, it's more experiential. Um, so. It's and then I don't know how diverse there, there, there's some diversity in Adventists. I don't know what your diversity is like in the U.S., but if you're not intentionally diverse, then you're not going to grow either. Yeah, yeah, we're wrestling with that still. Yeah, 
let's go to your the part three of your book in which you kind of look at where we go um, from here and you give a bunch of different examples of, of sort of fragmentation and also churches that are kind of reorganizing in different ways. Can you kind of summarize that uh, for folks? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things. There's, there's, there's definitely um, one thing that churches, I mean, they do a couple of things. Some say everything's changed. We're gonna we're gonna circle the wagons and just do things the way we used to do it. And that's one approach. Others are saying we have to adapt. What we're doing is not working. And then you have questions on how you're gonna adapt to it. So um, one thing I think congregations that are adapting well have in common is an idea that one that what they're doing is not working right and two that that um adapting doesn't necessarily mean changing your theology but it does mean going back to um some some real foundational practices saying who can belong here do people of different ethnicities belong here and can they be in charge? Can people who not us be in charge, right? Um, there are a couple, there's a couple stories in there of older white congregations. In one case, a church split uh, where the church was pretty much rescued by Karen refugees, so people from Myanmar. Another story where an older white congregation was doing fine and was renting space to a younger multi-ethnic congregation and decided to join that church, right, rather than saying that church should join us. But there's two there's these two churches that have stuck in my mind. One is in Nampa, Idaho. They're a Southern Baptist congregation. They are as conservative as you get, right? Uh, one is in Sacramento. They're progressive um, United Methodist Church. Both are really good at congregational building, right? They have a very clear identity who they are. They have a very clear set of beliefs. These are our beliefs, and this is what we do. And they have a an idea that they have to rebuild the car you know the building community takes a lot of time so it's intentional spiritual development intentional reaching to your neighbors intentional what does our service look like so it's welcoming the people it's very uh neither one is very big but they have they've grown by being slow steady growth and it seems to me like that is one of the things that if you say things aren't working then i think congregations almost have to go to rehab you know or or <laughs> to uh i sometimes compare it to um if you run you want to run a 5K. There's this great program called Couch Potato to 5K, right? Where you can go from sitting on a couch to running a 5K, which is about three miles, in about 10 weeks by basically building up your base a little bit of time. Walk, 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 run, run a little bit. All of a sudden, you're running five, three miles. And so some, some there's some of that because part of the other thing that's going on is people don't know how to belong to each other. They don't know how to disagree. They're all polarized. Everything is changing all at the same time. So they, it's a very difficult environment to be in. So some ways to say we have to go back to the beginning. Uh, and one way, you, so, so so take the Adventists. One thing that the Adventists are, are built on, like other denominations that are more, what's the right word, um, distinctive, is you have uh, a, an, um, you're doing calculus. You say, like, we have solved the equation of the Bible. And here's <laughs> our high-level calculus equations for understanding this. And and you are trying to tell people, you should come to our church because we're the best church. We have the truth. Or we're the best church for you, right, if you believe these things. But 
now you're dealing with people who are not doing calculus. They're saying, why should I care about this? Was there a resurrection? Does the Bible have anything to say to me at all? So the the group of people you're trying to connect with who are outside the church are very different. You're not trying to people who are already motivated or already interested or already convinced that Christianity has something of worth, and they're trying to find the the most the best way to practice it. You're dealing with people who are beginners, and or they're people who were Christian and are had bad experiences and aren't real interested in being Christian. So you have to overcome that skepticism. It's a whole different kind of ball game. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the analogy to calculus because that's been a, a drawing power. It's been a selling point. Yeah. uh, The church leadership, I think are still trying, they still haven't gotten that message that folks need to be sold on some basics before they um, are going to be attracted by that kind of marketing. Yeah. Or convinced by some basics. You know, one, one, do you know the the name Tim Keller? Oh yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Just passed away. Keller just passed away. What's interesting about him. Keller is this kind of um, very conservative Calvinist. So they got, he's got a very distinctive set of beliefs. uh, Starts a church in New York city, which does really well. Um, you know, by kind of trying to convince people that this Christianity is true, but also, but come from a place of real self-confidence or confidence in God, right? Confidence in the belief that these things are true and curiosity about people and kindness towards people, right? They're, they, he liked the people he pastored and that played a role of, um, helping them grow. And also he's very good at explaining ideas. Right. So there are people who disagree with him, people who agree with him, but he was very good at explaining those ideas and making them pal- uh, approachable for people. And so there's a whole skill set in that probably needs to be rebuilt. And then if you tell people you don't like them, they, why would they come to see you? And that's the problem in our culture is because of polarization. We very rarely meet someone that we don't have an opinion about. Yeah. And the opinions are not um, when we have an opinion about someone, they're generally uh, pretty intense opinions. Like we don't like people <laughs> or we like them a lot. Well, if people are outside your church and you don't like them, you tell them you don't like them, then they're not going to come. Yeah. So there's this kind of big, I don't know if you've seen this big campaign called he gets us, which is these yeah. billion dollars in these ads about Jesus. And one of the questions you can ask is, well, are people really, not interested in Jesus, or they're just not interested in Christians, right? That's this. They might be both, but getting people to be interested in Jesus is maybe an easier sell than getting people to be interested in in Christians because Christians in America are divided, like everybody else. So it's harder to the the anyway. The task is a lot harder, and to think that you can go back to where you were, or just say things are gonna, you know. That's not going to work. And the the timeline is bad. I mean, so most congregations in the U.S., the average congregation has dropped from being 137 people to 65 people. So you have you have thousands and thousands of congregations. And probably among Adventists, you probably have a whole bunch of little congregations that are on the edge of sustainability. So if things don't change, they will close because the people will die. So there's a great line. This will sound terrible, but it's funny. 
sociologist said, she's asked all the time, why don't people go to church? And she says, because they're dead. <laughs> because, you know, in the 1950s and 60s in particular, it was a high point of church going and church building in the U.S. And that church growing and church building uh, generation is passing on. And they aren't being replaced by younger people. And yeah. so that's one reason. In some ways, old people are the people keeping churches alive. And they're also um not going to be here forever it's a real problem mm -hmm. yeah adventism definitely faces some of those headwinds um you start out the book by looking at two very famous southern baptists mm -hmm. one of whom um is beth moore and i'll just read if you don't mind from sure. your book you uh talk about her kind of kind of for folks who don't know, an incredibly effective communicator about the Bible, somebody who is sort of seen as a very um, trusted, orthodox Christian within her denomination. Mm -hmm. And she starts to realize, um, in part because of the 2016 election, that her values and who she is is not really valued mm -hmm. by uh the people that she's talking to in fact they're 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 despite whatever she all the doctrinal agreement that she has with them they are really prioritizing this political lens and i'll just read all of a sudden she no longer believed the lies that she had been told she still believed in jesus and the christian gospel but she no longer believed that 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 the institution or at least its leaders were was dedicated to living out that mission when faced with a choice of power or faithfulness they chose the way of power and that definitely resonates with a lot of adventists within the spectrum community mm -hmm. who see uh who have for a variety of reasons have grown to see church leaders really prioritizing power over their relationships and mm -hmm. sort of using religion to mask it. I often say when I'm trying to understand and help other people understand Adventist leadership, I say passive aggression is mm -hmm. the way that power moves. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone's nice. In fact, you know, it would, the worst thing you can do is sort of blow up in a meeting. Yeah. But if you're nice and you pray and you, you know, do things that feel that look good, you can, mm -hmm. of course, keep the institution moving and it yeah. means firing people, moving money around and, and it creates a climate of stability. Um, well, at the same time, when people realize it, it tends to make mm -hmm. people kind of throw everything out at once. What what about Moore's story? drew you to using her as an example of this uh this kind of reorganization oh she's well once she's so compelling right she's just such a compelling story and i had i had uh covered her departure from the southern baptist a lot one one is that it really resonated with this idea that a friend of mine had told me when i started as a journalist that he he was quitting his job and i couldn't understand he had this great job he says, it's time to leave when you don't believe the lies they tell you anymore. So I was like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> Basically, it means every every group has a narrative. And, and he wasn't saying they were lying as in bad people, but they had a story. 
and the story all of a sudden that they thought they were doing didn't fit it for him anymore. Either there was no place for him or he didn't believe in it. And so that's the story of Beth Moore. She she's um so yeah, again, she's a Southern Baptist, um, really great preacher and communicator. She wouldn't call herself a preacher, but she um I think that the a couple things, the polarization of Trump, but also the the abuse um a power and sec- and the abuse of uh sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention and when that there's been a big crisis of that and when yeah. that broke she had tweeted something about um speaking at a church on Sunday on Mother's Day which happens at congregations right there are lots of that this is not uncommon and it became the crisis in the Southern Baptist Convention all of a sudden she's like what I I wait wait this is the thing and they just didn't want her anymore even though she did not have any doctrinal disagreement, right? She was complementarian in that she thought men should be in charge. She didn't want to be a pastor. But, you know, all of a sudden she could no longer, she was everything. If you were to build a perfect Southern Baptist woman, <laughs> be Beth Moore, right? She did everything. Gave money to missions, did all these things, taught the Bible. And yet she could no, because the outside pressures, you know, meant she was no longer welcome. And I think that's a lot of the, you know, if you think about like the leadership of the Adventist church, right? It's a terrible time to be a church leader, right? There's not enough money. The Everyone hates everybody. There are people who feel like uh, because of, because everything has changed, the culture has changed so much. People are trying to grasp at straws and trying to, um, hold something together and making always making less than great choices because they have less than great options. And so it's, it's difficult for people. And I think what happens in those moments is that it's easy to discard people as less important than the institution or less important than what at the cause or whatever. And there's not a, we don't have a great ability to disagree with one another, to say, uh, or to say no to people who might help us with a short-term gain, right? So that there's the um, the one of the appeals of President Trump was this idea for for a lot of conservative Christians or some of the Pentecostal folks is that he was the he was their bully to fight what they saw as their secular neighbors and. Um, not to defend that, but to say that, that there's a rational choice being made there. That, and if they had to act in less than Christian ways to preserve something bigger, they decided to do that. And for her, it's like, wait, wait, we said we didn't do that. Right? We said we didn't do that. And as she remembered the the Clinton outrage, right? When Clinton's affair was like, oh my gosh, we can't do these things. So um, anyway, she's just a very great, and she doesn't hate the faith she doesn't hate the people. She just couldn't be part of it anymore. There's this disruption in her life. So a lot of people are experience experience disruption, right? Even if you're a church goer. Now, here's the one thing that is really interesting. And I don't know if you see this in Adventism, is that we have this other phenomenon going on. That you have this disruption, but there are a group of people who are isolated from it, in that most people who go to church in the US go to a big church. Yeah, the median church size that you attend is 400 people. 
So half the people go to church with more than 500 people. And about 10% of the congregations have like 70% of the people. So you've got a, there are a bunch of people in churches where it's going really great. And they think there's, they extrapolate. So there's, in our church, there's 300,000 churches, 350,000 houses of worship in the country. There all must be like this. And therefore, we should have more influence. And therefore, everything's great. And what are you saying? They are not experiencing the, difficulty. But if you look at the average congregation, again, it's 65 people. So you have 80, 90% of the congregations in real trouble. 10% are doing fine. But most of the people are in those 10%. So they're not aware of how difficult and how um, really precarious things are in most places. So it's this disconnect. I think there's a tension there, a kind of cognitive distance between their experience and the way they see the world. Which is hard. So I don't, I don't know if you have that in the Adventists, if you've got Adventist megachurches, but you probably. Yeah, we don't have what, you know, we don't have the mega, mega church phenomenon in Adventism just because we just don't have, it's hard to get people excited to come to church on a Saturday at that level. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and do all the other uh, doctrinal uh, hoops. Uh, but we do have um, institutional churches scattered around the country connected. Yeah. Uh, co- you know, ho- colleges or uh, yep. sometimes even academies and then healthcare institutions. And so those do create, uh, it's an interesting, a kind of uh, you're cordoned off from the reality of, yeah. of, of Adventism in a lot of ways. And um, that, that probably does cause some issues for church leaders as well because they probably generally attend those um yeah so they think things are going fine i wouldn't be surprised around or the general conference headquarters are surrounded by relatively you know mid to large congregations um and i could see how that could make folks kind of get lulled into a false sense of security yeah no, it's a, it's a hard time, right? There's not, they're not good answers. And the good answer is that it's a long, slow, steady rebuild. And some things will be lost along the way because you don't have the money. And buy. and then Adventism is, if I remember correctly, you have kind of a top-down administration, right? There's a, the, the denomination owns the buildings and tells pastors where to go. So you don't have, that's, it's not a nimble, adaptable um locally driven congregationalism yeah which makes it harder yeah there's we have we have the local church conference union division and then conference so it is extremely structured um you talk about a church uh the movement church which in some ways you say reflects the reality of american religion where congregations still persist despite enormous challenges. And you offer two key uh, kind of insights, the sense of community and belonging for yeah. those who are part of the church, uh, offering them reassurance they're not alone, no matter what they face, and a sense of mission to rally around. So the sense mm-hmm. of belonging and sense yeah. of mission devoted to helping their neighbors in the hour of need. Is that something that you see repeated as maybe a healthy way for churches to navigate these, the sort of rock. Yeah, that, yeah, that church was so much fun. It's a little congregation that's, you know, but they're also, they're mostly, mostly, uh, mostly Hispanic and black members. 
mostly young, struggling, especially with COVID and stuff, very confident in God and wanting to do the right thing and it's struggling. But yeah, I think, I think like, um, I think some sense of confidence and some sense of mission and community and um, not a hostility towards their neighbors, but an aspiration helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were you young and starting, so they could be a little more ad- adaptable. That helps. They also didn't have enough people, right? <laughs> not do that. Um, but I think this kind of idea that you are, I do think there's a choice between for congregations. Do you want to rally the um, kind of circle the wagons against attack, or do you want to be open handed to your neighbors? Which doesn't mean that you're not grounded or confident in what you believe it's that you don't see the people outside the church as the enemy and you have enough that's why, why i think of this idea of the the concentrated of 5k is helpful because it it starts about you have to build some internal strength like you don't run a marathon by just getting off the couch you don't run a marathon the day of the race you run it for the the year ahead of time where you're you are a year beforehand where you're training, where you're building, you're doing step-by-step growth so you're strong enough for the journey. And I think that's probably one of the things that I observe for congregations, the, the adaptation is going to be long and hard and difficult and taxing, and people are not only not strong enough for that. Congregations probably aren't strong enough. Because when you had to go back to the kind of earlier analogy about the moving walkway, when you had when you were being carried along by the walkway or carried along by the current, right? You can you overestimate how good you are. Yeah, <laughs> you are faster than you really are. You are more. You you have and the work is not as as taxing because you're moving with the flow. When you're going against it. The work is hard. You have to work harder just to keep up. And you may, not, may you may be working harder than you ever did before and not make any progress. <laughs> and so that's not an easy, um, it would be easier if these things were, it'd be, I could make a lot of money if I had easy answers. And it would be easier if it was just theology or just better sermons or just better music. It's a complex problem. It is a calculus problem, right? It is a, how do you practice a very old faith, which people disagree about all the time, in a modern context, on the other side of the world, and in a context that's always changing, so that the models you had five or 10, 10 years ago are no longer, and the beliefs you had 10 years ago no longer work. The strategies, and really, and no longer the beliefs that people had had 10 years ago might have matched the broader culture uh, more closely, and they don't anymore. It's been a rapid set of changes. Yeah. So it's a difficult job. It's a very difficult job. And, you know, the ability to keep your head and say, um, we're going to do X, Y, Z. So that's why if I were a denomination leader, which I'm not, I'm not a pastor, I would be spending all my time and money figuring out how to stabilize congregations long enough so they can adapt and be thinking about that all the time. That's really interesting. I've been reading a history of Christianity in uh, Britain and Ireland. And, uh-huh. uh, th- th- you know, I, th- there 
the church decides, okay, we're going to handle, you know, marriages at, mm-hmm. you know, in the 600s or something like that. Yeah. And here's our, and then they have to, you know, they're, oh, wait, well, actually, this is a very complex thing and humans yeah. do all kinds of weird things. And how are we going to deal with uh, relative marriages? And yeah, uh, well, we have these two rules about that's not divorce, but these other things. And how do we, okay, there's all these exceptions, but they had a lot of time to figure that out. You know, yeah. well, we're going to decide on the a global Easter date. Well, they yeah. fight about that for a couple hundred years, you know, but they have the yeah. space to do it. I think your point about the rapidity of change um, uh, is really fascinating. Uh, I read James Glick's book about the about what more, almost two decades ago, uh, the early days of computer kind of cyberspace and the way that, mm-hmm. that was speeding things up. And I think that religion is really facing yeah. tensions in part because you just have access to information so much faster than religion can kind of in yeah. there has to be a hopefulness so one thing coming out of covid the congregations that did well congregations who use it to reinvent themselves or came out with saying okay we have a sense of hopefulness that this is what we're going to do in the future that there's an aspiration and a and a hopefulness that probably not um not optimism but hopefulness that probably plays a role in saying that we could do this and this is it's going to be hard but here's the ways this could work and here's the ways that we could try some new things and because people adapted like crazy during COVID, right? yeah they did all kinds of things and so there's this kind of confidence that okay um that we you could do something different you could be something more or you that it's that you're not done or through yet um that you know, and I, I was uh, I wrote earlier this year about a church that's in the book that we attended in the um, in the two thousand late like from the nineties to the early two thousands for like ten twelve years, and they just closed after years of sort of reinventing themselves. But they just got so exhausted during COVID, and so they couldn't get started. They couldn't find their way out, and they were already struggling. Were it not for COVID, they might have been fine. But they might have had another 10 years to adapt. But so the timeline for people has been shortened as well. Like it's not, um, there's been acceleration of already, of declines already. So it's harder. And then, you know, nobody gets along with anybody. So how can you get people to rally around something when they, when every, everything you, every return is a landmine? Mm-hmm. It's so hard. I like that uh, hopefulness because you're right. Churches had to adapt incredibly quickly. Yeah. They embraced uh, technological tools that yeah. allowed them to stay connected, which gets to this point about how you're kind of doing yeah. community. And there was a real sense of mission as yeah. sort of surviving. Um, my it's last, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, my last question for you. Really appreciate all your insights here. Um, goes back to you as a journalist and Adventism. Adventism has really not made the kind of headlines that a lot mm-hmm. of Christian denominations, they don't hold a, a kind of special place in people's imagination like the Mormons or Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses. Um, and I'm curious, as a journalist, uh, you've, you've referenced Adventism, you know about Adventism more than most Americans. Um, 
And, and yet at the same time, I'm curious how you, you know, is from, is Adventism doing the media in a, in a good way? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's funny when I talked about Tim Keller earlier, I realized that they got their church start by renting a space in an Adventist church because they didn't, they didn't have, um, so I wonder if Adventism is actually a good spot to collaborate with other people. That's not uncommon for a church. You know, and that could, yeah, that could be another. Yeah, I don't, you know, Adventism had its moment with, with the great disappointment. <laughs> which <laughs> made all the headlines, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's, nobody wants that. <laughs> um, but Adventism has some interesting things. The, the, the kind of healthy living stuff is probably could make more and that the healthcare stuff there could probably be more more engagement with people there's probably ways to engage with people on that that are that have a more of a broader appeal that i don't think i think Adventists take it for granted uh, either seems like they take for granted that people know those things about them or they just aren't interested in getting publicity which could be for a whole number of reasons, right? Maybe it could be, um, and because it's complicated, right? It's easy to get everything, lots of things wrong about Adventism. Even the name is hard to spell. Which which letters do you capitalize, right? It's like Latter-day Saints. That's right. And and it is, um, it's got a complex, you know, it's a little bit like, maybe I shouldn't say this. Every, please, every religion please. is complicated. Every religion is complicated. Uh, it's, they have some of the same uh challenges that Mormons do in that there are distinctives that set you apart from other um other streams of Christianity, right? So for some damage it's the it's the revelation stuff, uh end time stuff and um and embedded in that is a lot of anti Catholicism. Yeah, anti Catholicism. And then also like that we worship on Saturday. Yeah. I mean they're the most optimistic end of the world people in ages. <laughs> I had this most wonderful one of my most memorable flights with this guy named Brother Moses who ran this thing called Apocalypse Ministries. And he was he was a he was a teacher, right? He went he was like almost seven feet tall. And his son, his son runs it now. Um but they he he was going to Chicago to give a talk on the the apocalypse and like a normal it was an ongoing church education like conference, right? Have a conference on worship, conference on youth, conference in the world, and it's it was so matter of fact, right? That's such a it's a matter of fact. It's an apocalyptic, you know, tradition. Whose you know early days were like we're just going to sell everything and stand out in the field, and then they're like, oh, I guess it didn't happen the way we thought it was. Okay, carry on. <laughs> it's a kind of like you know, um, just carry on. They didn't give up. They adapted, and some ways that there's things that Adventists might not want to look back to your earliest days and say, "Okay, how do we learn and adapt?" Because churches always know how to adapt, um, and move on. Yeah, yeah. Well, they used to call themselves. They really tried to stay away from denominational language for the first almost twenty yeah. years and use the term "movement" to yeah. describe themselves. Well, yeah. it's been. Really great talking with you. Thanks for uh, oh, it was great 
your generous insights and thanks for the work that you're doing, helping us understand well, ourselves. As thanks for that. Talking to me about the book. I love talking about this book. I love this. I love this topic. So I'll talk about it all day. All right. Take care. All right. All the best. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.